The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Home Cinema Podcast for September. Coming up, we discuss the recent IFA show in Berlin, we look at hybrid laser LED projector technology, and we also report on the Panasonic PT-80-6000 and the new JVC projector launches. And joining me on the Home Cinema Podcast tonight is Steve Withers, Ed Selly and Mark Hodgkinson. Good evening, guys. Evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. Hi, Phil. And it's uh, it's been a long time since we've we've spoken about general home cinema and audio because we've had uh, the Picture Perfect campaign over the last three podcasts. Uh, so we are now almost finished. The last few videos will be going onto the Picture Perfect website in the next week. Um, so it's uh, it's been really successful. We've uh, obviously got two directors now following us as well, Michael Bassett and and uh, Neil Marshall are on board with Picture Perfect. It's also supported by every major manufacturer out there of TVs and projectors, and as well as national and uh, independent retailers. And uh, Steve, I think it's gone down really well. Uh, the forum is nice and busy, lots of questions, and people generally giving us positive feedback on having set up their TV following the guides. That's right, Phil. Um, you know, I've been reading the, the feedback in the, in the Picture Perfect thread, and uh, definitely people have, you know, they tried, they followed the guidelines, they've gone through the steps, and the majority of people have come back and said that their new picture, that they find it much more accurate, much more comfortable to watch. And um, yeah, just gen- generally, the feedback definitely has been uh, very positive from people that have done it. Anecdotally, even my mum did it uh, when I was in, visiting them last week in Spain. They bought a new TV, so I did a quick uh, setup for them. Just for the same basic steps that we got in the in Picture Perfect, had movie mode, um, adjusted contrast and brightness, that kind of thing. And my parents said, oh, that looks wonderful. They, re- they really liked it. Uh, about two years later, we were in a pub, and she's looking at the TV in the pub, and it's a football match on TV, and she goes, is that an artificial pitch? I said, no. <laughs> and she went, but why is the green so fluorescent? And I said, because, mum, you're used to looking at a normal picture, a really accurate picture now. So uh, if my mum can get it, anyone can get it. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, it's gone really well. The uh, the address is myperfectpicture.tv, uh, and step one, step two, and step three are now published. So if you want to get the best out of your TV or out of your projector uh, without going into it in too much depth with calibration and so on, if if that kind of uh, if that kind of thing kind of puts you off a little bit, then do go and try Picture Perfect. See how you get on. Tell us how you get on in the Picture Perfect forum. That's AV Forums dot com forward slash picture perfect ask any questions you like and either myself steve mark uh, or anybody else on the team uh, will come along and answer your questions as soon as we can uh, so moving on um it's been a busy month in terms of consumer electronics uh, in europe anyway with the ifa show in berlin it is europe's largest show and uh, ed went along to that uh, that show was it on the monday and the tuesday you were there ed is that right Yes, I flew out at a, an unmentionable time in the morning on the Monday and uh, made it back on the Tuesday afternoon. Uh, it was just enough time to get round the the body of the show, uh, and that doesn't include some of the more specialist areas. And I didn't get to look at like anything like as many washing machines as I wanted to. Um, <laughs> Eleven hours 
thereabouts got me round most of the critical sort of consumer electronics points that are of relevance to the forum. And that was me moving pretty much flat out all the way. Well, flat out by my own lethargic standards anyway. That was it. It meant get moving almost constantly and shooting on the fly. I'd simply forgotten how large a show it actually is. No, it, it is a large show. It's actually almost the same size as CES, which is the big show which happens every year in Las Vegas. Um, some companies take over massive halls, never mind big stands. They actually take over a, an entire hall, which is probably about the size of, of two football pitches. That'd be about the right scale, wouldn't it, Ed, for some of yeah, these big halls? Yeah, I mean, Samsung and Sony... Um uh, were, were in, in terms of sort of art, brands that of relevance to us probably pr- took a haul each as did Panasonic but then when you take some of the major German brands outside of, of just consumer electronics I mean Siemens had uh, an aircraft hangar there's no other word for it uh, I mean I took a photo in the show report of the Nespresso stand which was part of the Siemens hall which was larger than any one stand I've seen at a UK show in in years. It, it, I mean, the scale of the thing was just just off the clocks. And of course, for people that have never been, and a lot of people in the UK will never have heard of IFA. Um, it's it's the biggest consumer electronics show in Europe in terms of volume, also in terms of what's shown. Because unlike CES, where it's all the latest technology and car audio and that kind of thing. Um, with IFA, you get white goods. We're talking cookers and washing machines, fridge freezers. Um, and there's been some big leaps in, in that area, which, you know, we don't really look at that kind of product in any great detail. But Oh, I tell you, Phil, after, after that, I have washing machine envy and, and no mistake. <laughs> I, it's, I mean, it's, it, at the, the very opening point of the uh, the halls, Samsung could have been showing any of the, the various technologies they were demonstrating, but they were leading with a washing machine. I mean, they'd actually got, they turned the entrance into a, a washing machine drum, um, oh, extolling the... What's it called, that one? They were telling us about that when we were down there as well, to talk about um, other matters. Unfortunately, the advert was sufficiently efficient that I not actually remember what the technology is called, but it was blowing like a hell of a... Super bubble or something like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, it was blowing it bubbles everywhere. It really low temperatures, doesn't it? Yeah. I can't but, believe I mean, we're that, talking about this, but I'm quite well, excited. You know, it's, 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 it's a meaningful thing. But no, as Phil says, I mean, um, it, it was as big a deal for any of the consumer items that you can think of in your house as it was for 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 the the electronics and av side of things i mean um there were boilers security systems it was you know you you could have literally devoted an entire week to to learning about the cutting edge of pretty much any device in your house if you were minded to Uh, one of the the where we're talking about the white goods and and stuff in the home that's not av one of the things that really amazed me was the the way that the hobs have come on nowadays. These um, so these induction hobs. One on the Panasonic stand I had a good look at, um, and it had plenty of safety features on it. And it only heated up the area where it sensed that there was a a, a pan. Yeah, you can't um, burn yourself with them. So you, so you can't burn yourself with them, and also it powered other devices. So if you had a a blender, you could put the blender onto the hob, and it powered it. So there's no need for cables or anything like that. It just powered any unit that you put onto there uh, that worked with that technology. I thought that was great. That's That's crazy. Yeah, really, really good technology. And and it looks super clean as well. So, you know, it's... uh, Of course, they're all all into... Well, Panasonic particularly are pushing it, aren't they? The integration of uh, televisions and the smartphones and controlling the appliances around the home. That's right, yeah. So So it, it does all tie up now. Yeah. 
And, and the other thing was was the fridge freezers. I mean, we've gone gone from the days of the big American double doored into uh, more sort of European sized versions of those. But uh, one thing that amazed me was was the actual uh, material that's used inside uh, to keep obviously the the cold in and the heat out. And you're talking about material that's a millimeter thick, which means that it's giving you more space inside the product to put stuff like. You know, you can maybe get 24 cans of beer in. You can now get 36 cans of beer in. My life is now complete. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's still nothing in my fridge, though, to be honest. <laughs> butter. Yeah, but just it, more air. butter. <laughs> <laughs> but at least it'd have nice fancy LED lights inside when you open the door, Steve. And it tells you when it's empty on the front. So yeah, right. That's all it would be saying. <laughs> Go shopping now. <laughs> So that that was the the general white goods area. And uh, moving on to the technology, um, one of the reasons why we don't take the video camera over and do our usual video slots is that what we found is that in terms of product releases, there aren't many new products announced. In fact, uh, talking about Panasonic, there there was no new AV models announced at all. There it was, was a more... six, sixty inch LED one. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'll stand corrected, Mark. <laughs> I don't think I wrote them all down before the, we started. <laughs> there was there was one new product, which uh, you know, it, it, in in terms of actually going over there and taking the time to do it, it we'd rather do CES because everything's mentioned at the beginning of the year, everything's launched at the beginning of the year. Uh, but that's not to say that there isn't good technology there, uh, Ed. Uh, and in terms of TVs, I know TVs are not really your uh, your main passion, but. Um, there was some really interesting technology there, especially when we're talking about high-resolution screens, such as the 84-inch 4K from Sony, which gathered a, an awful lot of attention. Uh, there was also the LG 55-inch uh, OLEDs, which we've seen a few times now and actually look like a, a finished product, as well as Samsung with their OLED. Um, I've seen it a couple of times, and when I saw it at IFA, uh, it looked more like the finished article. I mean, obviously, I've been living in a cave for the last 18 months in terms of te televisions. So I confess it was the very first time I'd seen LG's 55-inch OLED. And that was my, that was, for me, that was probably the most significant sort of stop and stare moment I've had since uh, the first genuinely good HD demonstration I had donkeys years ago. It really was uh, quite something, both in terms of the picture I saw on the unit itself and then the design of the unit itself i mean it's it's just um, it, it it defies everything sort of that i've come to expect certainly as, as a luddite for, that you can imagine even from a flat screen i mean uh, whilst i probably have some reservations about how it's going to sound unless they've um, worked some particular <laughs> magic with the speakers um it's there's no getting around the fact it's a gobsmackingly beautiful thing and then as you say the uh, the 4k 2k screens i mean i've had some if you like more sort of primitive demonstrations of that technology in the past, but yes, the, what, what you saw from Sony for me, especially was, was the finished article. It was, a, you know, a, something which, although it would take up a complete wall in my lounge would be, it, it, it was finished to, to, to the sort of standard where it's, a, it's, a, you know, a commercially ready product. And yes, the pictures, I mean, no, I don't think anyone was pushing them desperately hard, but nonetheless, they do look, uh, astonishing they are it, it it does everything for me that on a personal level 3d doesn't so i mean I, I hope that it isn't a technological blind alley and i hope that this is this is where where we move from here of course there's, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions out there when it comes to 4k generally because the public have have yet to get a good demonstration of what 4k will do steve um 
And looking at, at Sony in particular, Sony really seem to be pushing on with the 4K side of it. Um, their VW1000 has been available for, for a year now as a projector, obviously upscaling, because there's not an awful lot of 4K material out there. But um, I guess the beauty of the EFA show is that the public can come in and actually see the technology, which they can't do at other big trade shows. Um, and I guess it's getting the public in front of this technology and letting them see it because... Like I said, a lot of misinformation out there. People saying, "Well, you need to have this really massive screen to get the full, uh, the full effect of the 4K." But you know, we saw the 20-inch monitors, which were at IFA again, uh, which are 4K professional video editing units and standing uh, normal viewing distance back. You can see the detail and and the differences in, Im- in the image because it's not just the resolution you're looking at. That's true, Phil. I mean, we were quite surprised, weren't we, when we first heard Panasonic announce the 20-inch. 4K um, d- display, we were like, what's the point of that? It's too small. When we actually saw it up close, we realized that you actually could tell the difference in terms of resolution between that and a normal high-definition monitor. Um, and I think the thing about EFA that you mentioned, Phil, is that it is open to the general public, and most shows obviously aren't. So it gives people opportunity to actually see these products up close before they're launched. I'm guessing that EFA would have been the first chance for most people in Europe to see both 4K and OLED, I mean, as Ez just mentioned, I mean, if you, when you see an OLED screen, that it's so thin and, and the picture is so good that it does take your breath away, even even uh, if you're a sort of a, a jaded uh, video um, reviewer like uh, Mark or myself or you, Phil. You know, we, we, I did think, my God, that looks really good. Um, and the same with 4K. When you see the added resolution with, with, with really good content, as Ed said again, you know, there's a, a sense of depth to that image that, that you, you get without needing glasses, you know, without needing 3D. Uh, and given that 3D hasn't been as successful as perhaps the manufacturers would have hoped, um, maybe um, the idea of, of higher resolution and, and more depth in that sense, um, more traditional way, um, will uh, you know will give something that they can sell to the public again. I mean, numbers do sell, and I think that they're rather hoping that you know 4K, higher resolution, you know, ultra resolution, whatever they want to call it, um, will will appeal to the consumer more than 3D did. Uh, and the same thing with them with OLED, although they're going to have a problem with OLED, aren't they, really? Because they've already spent the last two or three years to let everyone they're buying an LED TV. Now they're going to have to find a way of uh, differentiating OLED from what was basically just an LCD TV with an LED backlight. So it'll be interesting to see uh, when they start launching these TVs, how they do uh, market them to the, to the mass market. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's definitely um, it's exciting times for us, I think, in terms of uh, in terms of what's coming out at the moment. And I definitely think there should be some really good stuff coming up at CES in January. Because um, so far we've seen, uh, we've obviously seen LED being used extensively for, uh, for for TVs, for backlights on TVs, not so much for projectors. Uh, and we've seen a bit of 4K, we've obviously had the VW1000, which we reviewed recently, which is, which is a 4K projector. And now we're starting to see some 4K TVs hitting the market in the last quarter. Um, but I think there's going to be some more exciting stuff, which I think we'll talk about in a minute in terms of projectors. But definitely, uh, I'm quite excited about CES in, in January in terms of what we might be seeing uh, with new tech. And of course, Mark, uh, it was it was one of the points that I made um, when I was at IFA. Uh, I did the 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 slot with the Panasonic Live thing. They wanted somebody independent to go in and talk about stuff. And one of the points that I raised there was, uh, it's not just resolution that we're talking about with 4K. If the studios, manufacturers uh, get together and the content providers get together uh, and actually come up with the uh, with the goods, we're we're talking about a, a larger color gamut in terms of matching the DCI spec, which is very close to 35 millimeter in terms of color. It's what's used in cinema projection at the moment, and also there's other 
possibilities in there as well as upping the bit rate of uh, of digital video so we can get better gradation of blacks and colors as well yeah i think personally as probably most of us here perhaps with the exception of steve i find 4k a lot more exciting than 3d uh, and the possibilities of that expanded gamut is give you a much um, higher resolution picture in, term, in terms of the color um, but also other than um IFA, just after that there was the IBC, the International Broadcasters um, Convention, um, and they were discussing the possibilities of, of delivering 4K, uh, and there's, there's a new um, HEVC H265 encoder that's just come out, which should really help in the delivery of it. It can, it can deliver 4K, it should be capable of delivering 4K at about 20 megabytes uh, per second, which is pretty much achievable from, from the existing satellite technology so that's quite exciting um going back to sony i think they've got a bit of a vested interest in for more of a vested interest in 4k than perhaps anyone else because they produce content themselves and they've also inevitably going to have the um playstation 4 coming out and i'm going to i'd pace a large bet on that having big 4k stickers all over it and whether that's it's capable of 4K gaming. It's, it's doubtful, but I imagine it's capable of delivering 4K video. So I think that they're they're going to be putting a lot of their hopes on 4K going forwards. Of course, this is going to be one of the one of the big white elephants in the room. Basically, is is the fact that uh, we still have to come up with some kind of delivery device, Steve. And uh, there's been a lots of conversations, lots of speculation. Um, if you're talking about a, an almost uncompressed 4K movie, you're talking anything up to 500 gig, up to a terabyte in space, just for an hour and a half or a two-hour film. Uh, obviously, you know, Blu-ray. It, there's no way you could fit it on on a Blu-ray disc, so it's going to need some kind of other delivery device. Um, obviously, Mark uh, with the IBC in Amsterdam, uh, they were talking about the new encoder, which um, hopefully that can be developed and maybe they can come up with some some kind of compression uh, which is going to help in terms of getting the file size down and keeping the quality because what's the point of 4K if you're going to compress the hell out of it? Yeah. Um, and a lot of talk about streaming this content, Steve, but if you just have to look at the UK broadband structure, yes, the government are pouring money into it at the moment, but the, they're, only, uh, they're only guaranteeing that... that most households will have a two meg connection, whereas, you know, you're talking about 50 or more, really, uh, to download a 4K movie, and even that would take about 12 to 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, let's be realistic here. If their approach is going to be to offer uh, 4K content uh, via the internet, um, personally, that's just not non-starter. I mean, I'd be there downloading till Christmas before I can get a movie, uh, one, just one movie downloaded. I mean, the file size we're talking about are just enormous. I mean, particularly if we want them to introduce things like a wider color gamut, you know, um, um, higher bit rate for color. You know, it's 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 going to take up more space. It's, all this stuff takes up space. And and you know, if you're talking about even with you know more advanced compression, if you, if you're talking about those kind of file sizes, it just isn't feasible in the UK. Uh, on a mass market basis to offer 4K content uh, over the internet. Um, so I, I still think that we might see one last hurrah for some kind of uh, of, of um, storage medium. Uh, maybe not a disc. Maybe maybe it'll be something different from a, from a disc-based storage medium. Because um, as you say, Phil, I mean, it would just be too big for even Blu-ray. Even if you had a four-layer Blu-ray, that would only be 100 gigabytes, wouldn't it? Which just wouldn't be enough. So... Um, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that we might see, I'm, I'm sure, you know, if we know this is an issue, 
then the manufacturers must know this is an issue. So I'm hoping they might have something to show the world at CES, um, because really, if you don't have at least a promise of some kind of 4K content, people aren't going to buy the TVs. I mean, when they launched high-def TVs, yeah, there was no high-def content yet, but people knew it was coming. They knew that high-def TV was coming in terms of broadcast. They knew that high-def uh, disc format of some kind was coming. It was just a matter of time. But if you know, if the only thing they can offer us is 4K over the internet, then frankly, there's no point in me buying a 4K display because I'm not going to be able to use it for 10 years. Um, so, you know, they need to have some kind of carrot <laughs> to, to entice people to, to go with, with the high-resolution TVs. I mean, they'll, you know, if you're just going to watch upscale content, then really there's not a lot of point. Um, although I, I did think it looked rather nice on the VW thousand when I reviewed it. Uh, ultimately, you know, we need some kind of 4K delivery system. Uh, ideally, with all the bells and whistles we talked about earlier, which is you know with, with the wider color space and that kind of stuff, um, that would be. Ultimately, we, you know, if we can get to the point where we've got 4K content with DCI color space, you know, we, we're talking about really be able to watch cinema quality content at home, and that's kind of the holy grail, I suppose. Uh, well, Steve, that's a, that's a good point because that's a little bit where the director's intent argument can fall down because we've never been able to see uh, the full colour space of 35mm film in the home. It's always been on 8-bit video. Um, it's always been downgraded to the Rec. 709 standard for, for HD. Um, so I guess when we're saying we'd love to see DCI in the home, that's the whole reason because uh, we're then getting to see the full colour gamut. Now, that's not to say that what we see on Blu-ray at the moment isn't what what's intended because that's the standards and the film meets the standards in terms of uh, the colour gamut that's available. But if we can up the bit rate, it improves gradation. If we up the bit rate, it improves the colour space. And then the, the extra resolution on top of that, Mark, it, it is a bit of a wet dream for home cinema enthusiasts. Yeah, yeah. and uh, well, let's, let's not, not, not stop with 4K. We've got 8K, haven't we? We've got um, a couple of manufacturers showing off 8K technology. Panasonic was one, Sharp, Sharp are pushing it a bit. I know it's, I know it really is a pipe dream, that kind of stuff, but yeah, that that is a sumptuous thought, really. It also needs to be introduced incredibly carefully. I mean, I can't help but think on occasions with any number of recent video and to a lesser extent sort of audio formats, the the moment that you release something and then start muttering about, well, if you think this is good, you should see what's coming <laughs> around the corner. Um, the general public just go, well, do you know what? I'll hang fire and wait for what's around the corner. Thanks very much. So if, you know, if we've got some fairly significant technical difficulties to overcome in delivering something which is, you know, broadly speaking, at the, at the cusp of commercial readiness, the moment that people start sort of demonstrating these things, because unlike, say, the automotive industry, where there's a clear delineation between a concept car that runs on uranium and is made out of something crazy, no one, at, no one really at any consumer electronic show has ever successfully delineated between we can do this and you might see it in 15 years and we can do this and we might do it tomorrow so i i, I personally i mean perhaps from a manufacturer background i just I, I think that there's a significant risk if they start sort of tinkering about with the if you like the never never especially if the the delivery method for doing so is 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 absolutely in the realms of science fiction which which it is at the moment for 8k uh, you just have to look at the olympics nhk uh, produced three cameras so that was it they had three cameras that could shoot 8k uh, and they were doing the demonstrations at broadcasting house and so on um with the with the big screens and and showing 8k and yes it's wonderful but 
just the cable between the camera and the capture device, you're talking about the cutting edge of technology in terms of speed to get all that data through that pipe into the capture device. And like you say, I mean, it is science fiction thinking at the minute for 8K. Uh, they can shout and they can show it off as much as they like, but it is a bit of a pipe dream. Whereas I think 4K is definitely doable and it's far more doable because uh, you just have to look at Hollywood. They've been doing 4K uh, stuff for, for years. I mean, 35 mil is actually more resolution than 4K. It doesn't have a resolution figure, but it, there is more detail in there than what 4K will capture. Uh, lots of studios doing 4K scans of films at the minute. 65 millimeter scans, they're doing at 8K and then down-resing that. Um, so they're already working on this material. That There's already 4K masters available for them to use to get the content out there guys so 4k is far more doable i think 8k is a bit of a pipe dream really yeah 4k is definitely doable the question will be uh, well two questions really one as we've already mentioned is, is that how do you deliver it the other one's going to be the studios getting behind it in terms of copy protection because the last thing they want to do is be putting 4k you know masters of films out into out into the marketplace without a hell of a lot of protection because uh, the a, you're paranoid about it anyway, and B, that it's a valid point. You can make, you, know, you can run off a load of uh, copies of, for Blu-ray quality off of that 4K master. So, there's it, going to be a lot of, um, you know, a lot of haggling, I suspect, between the manufacturers who obviously want this stuff out as fast as possible to help support their new tech, and the studios who want to protect their copyright, their their, their intellectual copyright. Um, and you know, if you look at the most successful product launch of all time, it was DVD. Why? Because every manufacturer was behind it. And so were the studios, and it, it took off like a rocket. Everything else since then has been has been stymied in some way by either a, a lack of manufacturer agreement, i.e., HD, DVD, and Blu-ray, or a lack of studio support. Um, so, so for my money, in, in terms of uh, mass market uptake, it's a question of a, how do you deliver it, and b, um, and getting the studios behind it in a big way. As you say, but they've got the content there. Um, they've been doing uh, 4K masters for some time now, and and and, and 35 millimeter film is a high resolution anyway. So the content's there; it's just getting it to the to the public uh, in a, in a safe and uh, easily deliverable format. So the thing was that with 3D, obviously, uh, you know, the manufacturers behind it, the studios were behind it. The, the thing was that there was no content, uh, or very little content, and there was only one film that really made uh, masterful use of the technology, and that was James Cameron's Avatar. Uh, everything since then has has either been a hodgepodge or you've had the odd film that has actually made uh, an impression with the 3D technology because you've had a good director behind it that's understood the technology. The thing with 4K is, like you just said, there is a ton of content available. It's getting the delivery device and it's getting it into the home and, and that's going to be one of the major things. And we always look at the high end of the market to see where things are going. And one interesting thing that Datasat are doing and it was something that they mentioned during our visit, Steve, uh, was the ability to pipe on-the-day releases to high-end clients in their home cinemas. Uh, they have the technology, obviously, they're a satellite technology uh, technology company. Uh, that's that's their background. They've now moved in, bought DTS Cinema, and obviously recently changed the name of Datasat. But they have the technology there to pipe the same-day release film into a client's home now. Um, it's going to cost the client a lot of money. Yeah, it's five, not cheap, is it? <laughs> 500 to to $1,000 per viewing. So I think that's pretty reasonable. 
but it's there. So if you made the money and, you, and you've got a home cinema and you get a few friends around, sell the tickets, 10 in, 50 quid a go, you know, you soon make your money back. Yeah, but well, it, it is for these clients where, where 500, £1,000 is like pocket change to them. I mean, that's, yeah, well, that's things the always kind. start with these people that are high and the people, the people that have got the, the income to, to, to be early adopters. Uh, and then it'll maybe just waiting for the for the technology and delivery systems to fall in place behind that. Yeah. So, yeah I mean, it will it, come. Yeah, I mean, it's already available. It, it can already be done. You know, these clients can watch a 4K movie the same day it's released in the cinema on the same technology that's used in the cinema. And that technology is definitely moving down into the home. You just have to look at the VW1000 from Sony, Steve, that projector. Uh, the chip in that projector was just a shrunk-down version of their commercial 4K projector. Yeah, absolutely. For that, that projector could handle DCI color space and obviously 4K. The full for, the full cinema 4K, not 4K that's actually being used on some of the displays, which is actually uh, what they're calling Quad HD, but it could take a cinema spec for 4K DCI. And I'll, I'll be quite honest here, when, when the guy from Sony came down to my house with a, a server to show me some 4K content on the VW1000, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a reasonably large um, widescreen, you know, cinemascope screen in my home cinema. Uh, the VW1000 set up, the content playing on it, and, you know, and I genuinely felt quite privileged because I was watching 4K content on a big screen at home. You know, and and obviously, you know, the content was limited and, and you, know, you bring it down on a server. But I had a glimpse of where we're going and it looked pretty good, I have to say. Uh, you know, the future looks excellent. Um, and I can't, I for one can't wait. But yeah, it, it, we're getting there. I mean, I, you know, I, I sat there and actually had to pinch myself and think I'm watching 4K content, you know, cinema Quality content on my home cinema. Um, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm personally genuinely excited um, this year, well, for next year, for January, for CES, because I genuinely think there's going to be some interesting stuff coming up. I, I've got to say, Steve, I am a bit jaded. <laughs> you know, I've been I've been doing this a long time now, and, and for anybody that does this day in, day out, um, it takes something pretty special to get you excited and to get you motivated sometimes uh, back into the into the subject matter. And I've got to say, um, the way that the industry is now moving, after four years of stagnant, nothing special for the last four years, and of course the economy has a lot to blame for that because companies aren't going to spend R&D dollars um, while you know, they're making huge losses. And let's face it, every major manufacturer has made uh, some pretty big losses over the last four years. But for the first time in a long time, um, and I'm going back to CES 2008 when I was shown um, Generation 10 of the Cura, which never sadly came to market and that kind of thing, where um, there was an excitement, there was a buzz in the air, uh, there was still the Blu-ray HD DVD thing just sat in the peter out at that point and it was looking exciting. And then we've had this four years of, hmm, yeah, meh. It's a gradual... 3D, and, 3D and smart TV the last yeah, four well, years. Yeah, smart TV... To a certain extent, I think that that's a big thing, and, and it's a good thing when you're looking at on-demand services and that kind of thing, um, the games and so on. I can't say I'm that interested in, but for the first time in a long time, I'm actually genuinely excited for CES this year. Um, I'm excited for where things are, are going to go because what we've seen so far this year, uh, the LG OLED that Ed mentioned. I mean, Steve, we've seen that twice, uh, two or three times actually. Since uh, since it was announced at CES, obviously we saw it at CES, we've seen it at a couple of other shows, we saw it in Monaco, uh, at the big European launch, 
every time I see that TV, I fall in love with the picture quality. That's not to say there aren't going to be issues with it, because I'm sure there will be. Um, it's a new technology and so on, but genuinely beautiful looking screens, beautiful design, and we're getting to a, a part now where where the quality uh, is is definitely on the up when you look at OLED in terms of dynamic range, black black levels and so on. It's an exciting technology. 4K is exciting. So, yeah, I'm excited. Bring it on. Can't wait for CES <laughs> this year. And, and, and Ed, um, having had a, a, a walk around IFA, um, what do you think about the, the general uh, feeling around the industry at the minute? Are, are you getting the, the vibe that it's quite an exciting time? There are some some strange, if you like, strange points of recovery. Is it's not consistent. Um, there are a number of people who still look like you've um, you, you've sort of shot their pet um, when you talk to them about how how the how business is going. I mean, obviously, the crazy one, and I've mentioned this before. I gave up counting when I count after my fiftieth headphone stand. Um, so the, there are some, I mean, obviously certain parts of the market being driven by, by products uh, outside of, outside of perhaps our immediate scope and that, that, that's feeding back into the industry. But I mean, leading, one of the things that was tucked away and I didn't take a photo of it because it didn't, it wasn't much to look at, but one of the technology stands, if you like, in one of the sort of transitional halls, but ironically between Samsung and LG was a company that I'd last seen mentioned, um, and I'm going to sound ridiculously sort of uh, geeky here it was last mentioned in the technology quarterly of the economist a couple of weeks ago um, and they are heavily involved in the development of the 4g networks for phones and and, and obviously all, all the cellular data from there and the long and the short of it is their ambitions them and um, a number of other suppliers for the 4g networks the ambitions are astonishing we keep talking about the limitations of the wired network uh, for internet delivery in the UK and Europe and to say nothing of the states there are people out there who will tell you with a straight face that they intend to deliver 200 meg and higher speeds over what is essentially currently regarded as the cellular network so it is possible that the 4G are quite outside of where we're looking for 4G delivery and so on and so forth. It, it is quite possible that the problems can be solved simply by companies pushing in an entirely different direction. I mean, I, I ironically have more faith than, than Steve in the ability of, of suppliers to start talking about 4G content over the web because I think there are developments afoot which are going to render some of our sort of despair at watching how slowly fiber optic is being rolled out and and simply consign it to not a, not a dead end but a, a far less important part of the infrastructure than we currently believe it to be and that's where EFA really comes into its own because if you've got the time to put the massive jigsaw together you can really see where uh, the, the 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 progress is going to be made and it's not necessarily in the area where people expect Ed, uh, on a slightly uh, related topic but slightly different what do you see the um future for hd audio you know the, the really what high, res? high bit, yeah the real high res high bit rate stuff do you see it ever going mainstream or is it just going to be niche it's very hard to say it's it believe it or not it's i mean as i am one of the most pessimistic human beings going i'm it's going better than i thought it was i can now buy if the fancy takes me a far wider selection of lossless and high res music than you, you might at first expect. 
Um, the problem is uh, it's the same as what happened with DVD audio and SACD and, and any number of other attempts at replacing CD. Um, when uh, people rolled out formats that people have adopted, stereo, uh, CD, so on and so forth, they didn't give us another release of Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. They went and produced popular music in the highest quality formats that they could. Uh, and once again, I can buy any number of pieces of high-res music, uh, and that sticks me down to the ground because my musical taste is very bizarre, but um, no one who's listening to anything in the top the top 100, let alone the top 40, could buy much, if any, of it legally in a lossless or high-resolution download. So there's no, no catchment of people outside of this small and regrettably ever-shrinking clique of, of, of sort of high-end stereo nuts, and that, that mm-hmm. does concern me. But the technology is... The technology is fine. The delivery systems on most websites when you buy the technology is very, very good. And many of them have gone a long way to countering the argument of what happens when you lose the download that you pay for. They have a number of insurance systems and the like where you've got, a, if you like, one a, one sort of emergency re-download of material on a couple of sites, which has impressed me. So all the problems have been solved. We just need to start venturing out of sort of you know audiophile pretension land and 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 making me and getting music onto this format that people want to listen to or i guess if people are just listening on a pair of crappy in-ears from their ipod it doesn't really matter does it, it it's funny the uh, there's some arguments about why very high resolution audio and 4k are similar and there are somewhere it's different there is a very strong argument that that there's no absolute necessity for um, for high resolution audio. We don't. There's not the equivalent of this color palette that that 4K is capable of releasing that it, that that exists in audio. What it does do is it shows up when you do something badly. So the one thing that high resolution audio does is it encourages people to make the effort to get it right first time. Um, so even when you're not listening on anything desperately special someone's put the effort in to get the best possible performance they could out of it so uh, it's the same with people buying stereo 45s in the 60s that's let's face it they were playing it on horrible horrible all-in-one record players i mean they look hilarious but they sound absolutely awful but of that percentage of people that bought it 25 percent maybe more thought you know what i'd like to listen to it a bit better than that and then they started buying it and that's that's what people need to do they need to ignore the, the the limitations of the technology that people are using to start with because they will sell the better technology to them later on very interesting you raised some interesting points there um but also the the fact that listening to music over the last 50 years uh, the general concept of sitting down between two loudspeakers and listening to your favourite piece of music and putting putting three hours aside to do that, um, that doesn't really fit with the modern lifestyle anymore, does it? And, and no, of course it doesn't. And and, and what's more, I'm not going to sort of criticise anyone for, for finding that to be the case. I mean, the golden age of hi-fi was when it was up against two and then three channels of television, most of which appeared to be three, two, one. Um, and 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 there was you know nothing in the way of computer games or or any of the other methods of relaxation and entertainment that we have now. It by its very nature, hi-fi is going to become a, a much more fringe pastime. Where uh, obviously when it goes feeding back to the, the the growth in headphones, where people are making sense is improving the ability for people to enjoy music 
when they they can't give it their undivided attention. I mean, if you think about the amount of time people spend listening to music when commuting, I mean, when I used to commute two hours a day by train, I mean, that was my most significant listening period a week. So all of a sudden, I mean, I last month reviewed a pair of £300 earphones. Now, if you just take that at face value, that just seems insane. But in many ways, it makes more sense to the vast majority of people in the UK than a £300 pair of speakers. They're certainly going to listen to them more. Um, and this is potentially where the big development for, for, for audio is going to be. And it does feed back into streamers where your music collection sits at home and is then able to make its make its progress to wherever you are at the time and things like that um but yes it, it's i mean in front of me i mean i'm sat in my listening room at the moment in front of me is an enormous classic two-channel hi-fi system and it's realistically the only one of its kind in the street i'm not necessarily surprised that that's the case it's just the way of the world and you know if if a number of people keep it up that's great but we we need to be sanguine about the fact that a number of people would rather do a couple of other things so that was Aoife and that's where things are heading and and I guess we're all really quite excited for the first time in a long time guys at, at the way technology is developing and I guess the next big signpost in the road is CES in January we are going over there we're going to do our usual videos stuff and Mark over this side is going to keep everybody up to date with the latest news and and it's one area of the show that I've got to admit I've never been to see and that is the high-end audio section of uh, CES it's normally held in the Venetian Hotel and Steve will back me up on this um, we're, we're there for the entire show and we very rarely venture outside the main hall because there's so much to see in the main hall and it's such a massive show isn't it Steve? Yeah I mean obviously given the sort of uh, what, what's most popular on, on the forums you know we go there specifically to cover um, primarily the TVs and uh, and because there's so much there we've done all the TV manufacturers and the Blu-ray players and some of the audio stuff and the projectors you know you've probably got half a day left to look at other stuff I mean it is a massive massive show and unless you've been to CES and seen it with your own eyes it's difficult to quote understand how big it is and how much stuff there is there um and and also the fact that obviously that the audio stuff is in the venetian which is a different location entirely to the convention center makes it uh, makes it more difficult to get to it as well and traveling around vegas in that five-day period is not easy it's basically constant queuing isn't it phil queue to get on the monorail queue to get in the convention center queue to get onto some of the stands uh queue to get out again um and then queue to get a taxi later on in the evening so it's 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 QQQ and it means getting around the town is, is actually quite difficult. It's not um, so double parked this year. Though. It's not happening at the same time as that um, the other the other uh, oh, convention. Oh, the oh, adult the, video awards. The adult <laughs> yes. video awards. Yeah, yeah. No, and uh, they've they've actually moved location and moved dates for that now. Um, probably because there was so so many members of the press. <laughs> had two press passes <laughs> that <laughs> week. <laughs> anyway, well, we, we don't work for adult video forums, don't we, Phil? So we should work pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, oh, we work for AVF. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, so that's it's all exciting stuff. Um, and obviously the build-up to the show, we'll be discussing in more detail uh, what, what's possibly going to be coming uh, in the new year. And obviously we'll be looking uh, for you, dear listener, to give us some ideas of what it is that you're excited about you can uh, you can post your ideas and your questions and your thoughts under this podcast in the podcast section of the forum 
Moving on, and for the past three Home Cinema podcasts, we have been talking about Picture Perfect, but we have been out and about on the road looking at new product uh, in that time frame as well. And this is the first opportunity, really, Steve, that we've had uh, to really sit down and discuss what we've seen so far, what we've hoping to get into, re- into review in the next uh, few weeks, and that's in the world of projectors. Uh, and our first look at uh, an exciting new technology, which is more aimed at the professional market and the data projector market at the moment, is hybrid LED light sources for projectors. And the first one that we saw was from Panasonic. Uh, it won't be available till the turn of the year, and like I say, it is a professional product. But we went to Pinewood Studios, their... Uh, uh, their professional department there they have a uh, basically it's two rooms one's for broadcast it has all the broadcast cameras um got to remember panasonic a huge company they don't only do av they do professional video video editing video streaming and all that kind of thing um so their professional department two rooms one's broadcast the other room is uh, signage digital signage um video walls and that kind of thing uh, but we had a look at a projector there that was launched um, and that was back in, was that August? Back in August? Um, it was even earlier than that. It might have been uh, June or July. It might, it might actually have been July. Um, and like I say, we only spent a few hours with it, uh, with that technology. But in the meantime, you've had an Acer through for review, Acer Projector, which is a data grade, but using uh, a variant of the same technology. Um, so just for the listeners, why don't you just quickly go through what hybrid LED laser light source is? Um, and then we can obviously go into more more discussion on how the technology looks when it's projected. Yeah, because I mean we hadn't actually been aware of this technology until we saw it at the Panasonic of uh, event with the, um, their Pro projector. Um, and if you think about LEDs as a light source, I mean obviously they've taken the TV world by storm. Pretty much every TV now, with the exception obviously of plasmas, um, uses an LED backlight of some form or another, either at the edge or behind um, the panel. Um, because you know LEDs are they're consistent, they have a long life, um, they're they're very efficient in terms of energy usage, but in the projector world, um, we haven't seen that take up in the same way. We, there have been projectors that have used LED light sources, um, and we reviewed about four or five of them on the site, but they tend to be very very expensive. Um, they've been available by Sim and, and Vivitech and uh, and uh, digital projection, uh, and you know they've been a sort of fifteen grand price point. Uh, and you think, well, how come they're so expensive and why are more people using LEDs anyway? And there's two problems basically with LEDs as a light source for a projector. One is that um, they're very expensive to implement because you have to keep the temperature. I mean, they don't produce as much heat as a normal bulb will, but they're very susceptible to changes in temperature. So you need to keep it consistent. And doing that is actually quite difficult and expensive. And also they're not very bright. Um, the first SIM 2 I reviewed, uh, the Miko 50 was 800 lumens and that rated at that. Um, and the most recent one, the, the M150 SIM2, uh, 1,000 lumens, which was reasonably bright for an LED projector, but still not as bright as the majority of the bulb-based competitors. Um, now, when we saw the Panasonic uh, professional model uh, back in July, what they've done is they've combined, as the name would suggest, laser and LED. So they're using LED for um, blue and red. And they're using a laser, a blue laser, actually, bounced off of a phosphor, um, basically a, a phosphor uh, wheel, to create the green element of the image. Uh, so obviously there are reason, reasons why you don't want to use uh, a, a laser itself, you know, as in directly out of the uh, light source, because 
you know, if you looked into it accidentally, it would it would well, frankly blind you. So so for I think for, for safety reasons as much as anything else, uh, they, they don't want to use a direct laser so they're bouncing off a phosphor. So they're creating the green element that way. But obviously anyone who's looked at our graphs and the review section will see that the biggest part of the visible spectrum is green. So if you can if you can find a way of making green brighter, um, then the overall brightness of the image is going to be higher, but you can still use LEDs for, for red and blue, which are a much smaller part of the visible spectrum anyway, and therefore the, the lack of brightness of the LED itself is less of an issue. So that's the, the sort of the concept behind the idea is, is, is by using both a laser and an LED, you have a light source that is A, brighter, B, cheaper to implement, and C, uh, lasts much, much longer than a bulb. You know, the average life of a, of a bulb in a projector is probably 2,000 hours, roughly, could be a bit longer, could be a bit less, it depends, but about, about 2,000 hours of effective life. And you, to be honest, within 500 hours, it's already lost about half its brightness anyway. So they're not very consistent bulbs, whereas a, an LED, or LED light source or an LED laser hybrid will give you 20,000, 30,000 hours of life, uh, and it will remain consistently at that brightness for the most of its life. So, I mean, from, to, from the point of view of a light source for a projector, it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of the holy grail, really. You've got, you've got bright, long life, uh, and consistency, uh, none of which basically you can get. Well, certainly that's the two you don't get up a bulb. Uh, you can get bright bulbs, but you don't, don't tend to get the, light, the lifespan or, or the consistency. So that's the idea behind it. And that's one of the reasons why I was so excited when we saw it um, at, at Pinewood, because we thought, well, hang on, if you can get it, I mean, because the, the Panasonic professional projector is rated at 3000 lumens, which is very bright. Um, uh, and, you know, and you're thinking, well, if you can get that kind of brightness from, from an LED laser hybrid, and you can get it to be consistent, so you're not losing half the brightness within 500 hours of use. Um, you know, you've got something that, for me at least, I find quite exciting. Uh, and as you say, Phil, uh, I got a look at the Acer, which is the first projector, I believe, to be released with this new technology in it. Now, obviously, the, the Acer projector is aimed primarily at the data data grade um, projector market, because there are certain advantages that, that, that this technology offers that kind of marketplace. Because A, you've also got the long life, which is great because these projectors tend to be on for lots of long, if not all day. Sometimes they use for signs, that kind of stuff. They can be on for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So long life is important. B, consistency in terms of brightness is important. C, having enough brightness is important, because often they're used in like school, school rooms or, or boardrooms with a lot of ambient light. And they can be turned on and off instantly. And there's no cooling down period that there is with a regular bulb projector. So there's lots of advantages to this, which which lend itself very much to the data grade projection market. And that's what Acer have used it for. And that's primarily what um, Panasonic are aiming at with their projector too, to be honest. Uh, so so I, it was good to have a chance to, to test, to review it, try it out in a, in a home cinema. And I have to say that um, certainly in terms of um, what it promises, it, it, it is bright, um, it is consistent. Um, there were some issues in terms of color accuracy, particularly with green, which I suspect is linked to the way that the green's created in this, in this LED laser hybrid. Um, I'm hopefully that problem will be, you know, will be ironed out over a few generations. I mean, this is a first generation projector, so you know, you're going to have some teething problems with it, I suspect. But in terms of the, sort of the premise, in terms of the capability, it, was, it really shows promise. Uh, and, I, you know, I personally, at the point now where I'm thinking, I don't want my next projector, my next projector is going to be a projector that does not use old, basically. Uh, I think this is the way forward in terms of uh, a light source for a projector. Yeah, it is really interesting technology, and obviously you've highlighted all the big plus points there. Um, and one of the things that, that tends to put people off projectors is the life of the bulb, and the fact that buying a new bulb, it's not cheap. Um, you know, most bulbs are around about the £500 mark, 
Some are a little bit more expensive than that. Some some of them might be a little bit cheaper. But the thing is that, like you say, um, you know, after about five hundred hours, maybe a little bit longer than that, you're probably down to about half the brightness you were when the bulb was new. Now that hope that happens over time. Um, and and it's quite gradual, and sometimes users don't necessarily notice the difference. Um, certainly, I, I I haven't noticed the difference until I've put a new projector I've got in for review next to the one that I've been using, and then you, <laughs> you can see the difference. It's quite and, depressing, isn't it? it especially if it's from the same model line and and the same manufacturer, and, and you see the difference there, and you don't ne- you don't notice it over over the time that you use the the thing. But if we can get LED hybrid laser technology into a home cinema projector and get the accuracy because one of the things that is a strong point of of the technology is the purity of the color as well so um you know at the mo- at the moment there's uh, certainly with uh, lcd technology uh, and to a certain extent with dlp with a color wheel and so on there are filters in the way to improve the color uh, from the bulb because a, a uhp bulb very little red energy uh, it comes from a, a UHP bulb, so there has to be some kind of filter in the light path to try and add some of that red energy back in. Like you say, uh, the brightness comes from the the green and yellow spectrums of of the light source of the bulb. Um, whereas LED technology, this hybrid technology, it should be more accurate in terms of color production. Yeah, that's you're right, Phil. You should you should have a a very accurate um, color reproduction. With consistency as well over the life of, of of the projector, which means that if you when you get it if you get it calibrated, um, that calibration will be more likely to remain you know accurate for a longer period of time. With a bulb based projector, you can find the calibration can drift as the bulb dim, dims over time and its color accuracy reduces. So that that's a good point as well. Um, much more accurate colors, much more consistency in terms of the reproduction. And of course, one thing when you're talking about projectors, certainly projectors like the JVC, which we're going to go on and talk about the new models just in a second, is uh, especially when you're talking about the high-end models where you want to get the full uh, dynamic range and the full contrast out of them, you really need to be using them in a back cave environment, a proper dedicated cinema room uh, where you've done the correct treatments uh, to make sure that, that light isn't bouncing back onto the screen and washing out the the extra contrast that you should be getting from the machine um but the reality is that there's very few people out there apart from uh, a handful or maybe more than a handful of of av forums members who go to the the real hassle of building a, a dedicated room and, and treating it because um unlike myself and you steve most people have partners who are uh, <laughs> <laughs> who are pretty... not very tolerant of black holes i think <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know we we can get we can get away with uh with having our cinema rooms completely black or completely darked out but for the vast majority of people there has to be some kind of compromise there when using a projector and when you start compromising you then start compromising on performance and there's no point putting in a, a jvc x95 which has 130,000 to one contrast claimed native contrast um, into a room with white walls and a white ceiling because you're going to kill that contrast ratio straight away. So I guess another flip of the coin with this technology is the brightness. Um, it's always been a strong point with DLP technology, certainly, that if you can get more lumens out um, and use the correct screen in a room with, with light colour walls and light ceiling, you're going to get a far higher picture quality than, than you would with... Uh, like I say, a, a high-end projector where you, you're going to kill the contrast ratio because of the walls and the ceiling. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that is definitely one of the advantages of the projectors. I mean, clearly, given that they're, they're aimed at the data grade market, um, you know, brightness is key because, as I said earlier, they're not being used in rooms. They're being used in rooms with lots of ambient light, quite quite likely. Um, and therefore, brightness is important, which means it lends itself in a, in a way, as you say, Phil, to, to use in the home where your viewing environment may not be ideal, i.e. you've got light-coloured walls, which is probably most people's cases, apart from you and I, obviously. Um, so, yeah, that, that's added brightness is important. Uh, interestingly, um, because they're used, they were both DLP projectors, both the Acer and um, the Panasonic. Uh, and because you're using LED and laser as a light source, there's only no for a color wheel, which means one of the other advantages of this approach is that you don't have um, any any, color, any rainbows, you know, color flashes when you're when you're watching these projectors, um, or at least. I've got a friend who's particularly susceptible to this, and um, um, he saw occasionally saw them, but but basically nowhere near as much as he would do with a traditional single chip DLP with a color wheel. So that's another advantage of, of this particular approach to um, to using um, LED and laser as a light source. So let's turn to Mark. Mark, you're more or less in line with the vast majority of forum members in the fact that uh, you have a family to look after as well as your hobby. Uh, and your, yeah. your, obviously your professional side in reviewing TVs and so on. So, Projector, I guess you'd love one. Um, yeah, I'd love one. It would mean um, some serious work in the in the loft, really, to, to well, the current state of affairs, anyway. Um, I was actually speaking with Steve when he got this Acer in for review uh, over Skype, and I, I think LED laser hybrid is, is probably what would probably see me Enter the um, enter the fun, as it so to speak. But yeah, it's 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 a bit of a commitment, isn't it? I mean, you've got you've got to find a way of mounting it somewhere good, having a, a bit maybe to be able to hide the screen for a bit of uh, approval factor at home. Um, so it's a serious investment, um, something I'd certainly like to do. But it, it, yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not that accessible as things are. But then again, you know. You're not going to get an 80-inch or 100-inch plasma in your, in no. your house as it well, stands. So it no. seems to be the only route that, that really opens it out for big screen at home is, is the projector route. So do you think that this technology could maybe give the projector market a real good kick ahead and get well, more people interested? Certainly from my perspective, yeah. The, 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 attract, the attraction of not having to replace the bulbs and having plenty of brightness to play with and not really having to consider the room too much and chop and change it. Which wouldn't go down well, I can I can tell you. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a very attractive, very attractive proposition indeed. And, and the prices, even the initial prices, look look good. And as obviously the uh, technology matures and uh, and the and the manufacturing costs come down, then it, it becomes ever more attractive. Well, I mean, it does. I, I've I've looked at the technology on a, on a sort of spec sheet level. I've not actually seen one in action yet. But it, yes, it, it does. It, it there there are appeals about sort of lifespan. Uh, practicality and yeah I mean it, it's interesting I mean, ironically I mean although I, I, I have a wife she it would not be the impediment to to actually getting a projector into the lounge just just my own idleness and the fact that I'd, I'd probably still need to run a screen a conventional screen of some description just for, for the times when running a projector is a little bit impractical but it does seem to overcome many of the many of the sort of concerns that I, I've had about projector ownership over the years and e ironically even though you get pe 
you, people with projectors who sort of chart when they reckon they'll need a new bulb and actually find that in in terms of in co- the course of the times they actually use the projector for sort of special events and the like they come nowhere near that the very fact that it's a weight off your mind that the projector will have a, con- a consistent lifespan for a, a consistent length of time whilst at the same time hopefully working better in a room which isn't painted black that yeah there's a lot to be said for it I, I've got to be honest. I'm I'm probably going to be chasing the uh, chasing the OLED rather than the projector. But yeah, it, it certainly has certainly has a lot to say for itself. Now let's just go back to some conventional projectors just to round things off. And uh, we've had two major releases uh, recently. One was the Panasonic PTAE six thousand is the uh, the UK model number. It's a PTAE eight thousand in the US. A direct replacement for. Uh, one of my favourite projectors last year, which was the PTA-5000. Uh, so we got to see this in the new cinema room at Panasonic's HQ uh, back last month, Steve, along with other UK uh, AV journalists. Really nice job that they've done with the room in there. Proper light control, which is always a good thing. Um, and really quite impressive with what we've seen from the projector. It is brighter. Um, it has uh, some new features on there. Now with 3D, you can use the lens memory if you have a 235 screen and it looks like a general step up a bigger bulb in there um they've redesigned a lot of the optics there's a new uh, filter in there as well to help with color and so on and they've actually listened to a lot of feedback as well in terms of having a a, a consistent rec 709 preset in there right from the start yeah i mean uh, they went they had a presentation uh, in their new home cinema room um it's talking through the projector and the refinements that have been made on the previous generation on the PTAT 5000 and I sort of nudged you and, and basically looked to you because a lot of the comments they were making in the presentation were you know were comments or feedback that you'd given them in your review of the PTAT 5000 so as you say that they've, they've made changes to things like being able to use a lens memory with 3D which you mentioned in the review um, they've refined uh, the 3D performance slightly obviously it's a bit brighter um, one of the things they didn't do which is interesting because on the TVs they now have uh, RF glasses. They use an RF emitter in the TVs and, uh, and the new RF glasses, uh, similar to the, to the same um, basic approach that's being used by some other manufacturers like Samsung as well. Um, whereas the projector still uses uh, infrared. And when we asked them why that was, they said that they felt that uh, people, more than a few people would watch a projector, it tends to be larger groups. And therefore, it, it made more sense to use infrared than RF, where you could have a limit on the number of people that could, uh, could watch any one time. Um, which is which is interesting because when we get onto JVC, that's not the approach they've taken. But uh, but yeah, it, it, it looked. I mean, they gave us a demonstration of, of the project of the of the PTAT six thousand, uh, um, and they actually had had a, a five thousand there as well, so we could actually directly compare them in terms of uh, higher brightness and, and improved three D performance. And I got to say, it looked very good. I mean, it's not a, a massive difference. And basically, there are there are more refinements than the major changes in terms of the projector itself. It, it's it, 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 but it, yeah, it certainly it looked uh, last year was good, and this year looks even better. Quite interesting that a lot of the presentation was still on 3D uh, and and taking it down the 3D road. I mean, obviously, Panasonic's invested an, an awful lot of money in in 3D, and it would be a surprise if they were to drop it. And I don't think uh, we're going to see any display manufacturers, be it projectors or or TVs, drop in 3D. I think it's just going to be a a feature going forward, that just something else that you can take advantage of when you buy one. But it's interesting that they, they had taken on a lot of the feedback in terms of the 3D side of things and uh, certainly in the demonstration where we were swapping between uh, the two projectors, there is a noticeable improvement in the brightness, which is 
it, it's always a thing, especially with projectors, where you're maybe only hitting 800, 900 lumens calibrated anyway, that as soon as you put the glasses on, you're dropping that really half in that or, or even taking 70% away when you put the glasses on for 3D. So it's always encouraging to see them improve that side of the projector without damaging the 2D side of things. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why the uh, Panasonic Professional Projector is quite exciting because, you know, if it's putting out 3,000 lumens, uh, then even in 3D, you're going to be getting sort of maybe six, 700 lumens uh, of brightness. Then, 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 you know, that's a really bright 3D image and that can make a massive difference in terms of 3D viewing where, where the extra brightness can give it a real punch. Uh, that quite often is lacking when it's just too dim. Well, of course, uh, that, that's what Sim2 do with, the, with their top-of-the-line projector, which we showed at the Gadget Show. I mean, that puts out 3,000 lumens, yeah, and when you switch yeah. to 3D, it makes such a big difference. Um, absolutely, Phil, yeah. And, and, and it does make a hell of a difference when you've got that kind of you know, brightness to play with, to start with. If you're starting off at like 1,000, 1,200 lumens, calibrate you down to sort of 900 lumens, put on the glasses, you're down to two, 300 lumens. That's not a very bright picture, particularly if you're on a large projection screen. So, so absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you any any additional brightness is great, and and obviously this year we, we're seeing with the new projectors that all the manufacturers are trying to squeeze as much brightness as they can out of their traditional bulb setup. Um, and Panasonic have done that with the PT eighty six thousand. They had a quite a nice little feature. It's not very really useful, I, I think, in terms of actual watching uh, content. But uh, the feature that showed you uh, by color color coding um, whether it was negative positive parallax, uh, whether it was red or blue. Um, you could see um, when watching 3D content just how much negative parallax was being used and, qu and quite often, interestingly, very little I noticed. And that's something I think I've commented on previously, which is that you know when you do get 3D content, content providers aren't actually taking advantage of it as much as they, they're keeping it in quite a narrow range in terms of negative and positive parallax. And I think that's one of the reasons why it hasn't been very popular. So people aren't watching 3D content and thinking, well, it doesn't look very 3D. There's not much uh, 3D in there. And uh, that particular feature really highlighted it on some of the content that they were showing us at the demo. Okay, so moving quickly on to uh, JVC. They've got three new models. Well, uh, sorry, four new models this year. You see, I nearly tripped up there. Four new models this year. And uh, the interesting thing, Steve, straight away that jumps out as soon as you see the lineup is the X55, which is a new model. And basically, this model's appeared because of not just feedback from, from obviously reviews and so on, but obviously feedback from owners and people looking to invest in a projector that there was nothing between the X35 or the X30 last year and the X70. Um, you were talking three grand and then straight up to the seven grand price point. So really interesting that this year they've, they've added this new model in, the X55. It's going to retail at 4999 and uh, it has some of the high-end uh, specifications on this. It has eShift 2. Uh, it also has the full calibration controls, gamma, uh, CMS, and so on. And it has the same lumens and contrast as the X35. So really, it is a, a bang-in-the-middle model. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at last year's model lineup, you, you say they got the X30, which was competing in the sort of two, two and a half, three grand price bracket. Um, and then you had the X70, which is seven grand. There was nothing sitting there competing with people like Sony, uh, who have projectors with, with 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 CMSs, which wasn't on. There is no CMS on the X30, for example. But there was, you know, there was nothing in that kind of middle ground. And and as you say, they bought this the the X55 now is smack bang in the middle between the X35 and the X75, giving you a lot of the features that were missing on 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 the lower model last year. 
um, that you'll find on the higher models. So as you said, Phil, there's a CMS in there. There's um, uh, eShift or eShift 2, as it's called now, which has been refined from last year. So it, I've got to say, for the price, it's looking like a very attractive uh, very attractive uh, proposition. You have to wonder, actually, um, what's going to entice people to buy, spend more money on the X75 um, <laughs> when the X55 looks pretty good. Yeah, and I've got to say, uh, even though it was a pre-production engineering sample I was looking at, I've got to say it looked absolutely fabulous, the 55. Uh, tons of dynamic range in there. Excellent black levels with lots of shadow detail. Um, and the E-Shift, uh, it works. It, it looks fairly good, fairly sharp, and it's, but it still has that analog feel that we really like in projectors, you know, that analog sort of film-like look. Um, and, of course, I used all my... Uh, uh, favorite clips, you know, chapter 48 from King Kong. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to say, it looked really, really good. And for the money, um, I really think it that one is going to attract a lot of attention. Um, I'm sure the 35 is going to look superb at its price point. Um, be interesting to see if they have corrected the, the color gamut out of the box on that one. They got a little bit closer with the X30 last year um, to getting it bang on. Um, the other thing with the 55, the 75, and the 95, the standard color profile, uh, I am told, is now far closer to Rec 709 than it was last year because it was a little bit undersaturated. Um, so, yeah, the 75, it adds in the THX 3D. Um, it adds in ISFC 3 certification. It ups the contrast ratio. So the 55 is a native of 50,000 to 1. The 75 is 90,000 to 1 native. And then the 95, which is obviously hand-built with all the best components from the production line. It's going to be a 10 grand machine. Uh, but it ups the contrast ratio to a native 130,000 to 1. Um, and I've got to say, with JVCs, when we've measured them, they do get pretty close to the advertised figure. It's not something that they, they tend to uh, over-exaggerate on. They're really quite conservative when they come to the native. And, of course, there's no DI in there, so there's no dynamic uh, iris you know, that is a native contrast ratio, which has always been a plus point with the JVCs. Uh, so like I say, X35 is going to be 2899 uh, 55 is 4999 75 is 6999 and the uh, the 95 is going to be just a pound under 10,000 pounds. So it looks like a really interesting lineup. Uh, we will get a look at them um, as always before the, the end of November. Uh, they're all being released in November, so no staggered release this year. Uh, so we should get them all through pretty quickly and get them assessed. Uh, so you're going to look at the 35, Steve? Yeah, I'll be looking at the 35, which which makes sense because I also looked at the 30 and the 3. Um, and yeah, I mean, as you say, Phil, they've, 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 they've definitely tweaked it this year in terms of 3D performance, I noticed, because last year, I, I think, to be honest, that they kind of took the Arthur Ball a little bit when it comes to 3D performance, but this year they, they've worked at it again and improved it. As I mentioned previously, they've also added RF, uh, an RF emitter rather than infrared, um, which is backwards compatible, by the way. So if you've got an, one of the older models, uh, an X30 or a 70 or whatever, or an X3, you can use this new emitter uh, if you want to. So if you want to have RF rather than infrared. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll be re really keen to get my hands on it and try it out. Because you say, Phil, I mean, historically, JVCs have had fantastic black levels a lovely and an analog uh, quality to the image, um, and uh, I'm a big fan, so I'm looking forward to it. And of course, last year um, the introduction of eShift it tended to improve the the motion resolution, uh, and I noticed that again uh, looking at these models. I looked at the 55 and the 95. Um, the 95 
it's a gorgeous, gorgeous picture, but you need to have that in the right um, surroundings, the right environment to get the the full impact of that. And I guess that that's really going to be the custom install machine, uh, the 95, just because of the price and the fact that you need a dedicated room for it. But I think the, the 75 and definitely the 55 are going to be the big models this year. So looking forward to getting them in for review. And that just about wraps things up. But you've had a new voice this evening on the podcast, and that's Ed Selly. Ed is uh, our audio reviewer. You've been looking at headphones and uh, some docking stations and other things over the last few months, Ed. Um, you've been a forum member for about 10 years now. Is that We're right? Coming up to my 10th anniversary. It, it's crazy when I actually phrase it that way. But yes, it, it's been a while. So for, for those forum members that maybe... Uh, uh, are not acquainted with you, um, maybe haven't been following what you've been up to over the last couple of months, maybe give them a little bit of background about yourself. Um, right, well, we'll keep this as brief as possible. Um, I've now been working in the industry in, in some way, shape or form since 1999 when I started working in retail. Um, I moved into working for manufacturers after I left university. So in 2003, I joined um, Audio Partnership, who are the umbrella company for Cambridge Audio and Morden Short. Um, I stayed there for many years. It was ironically them that sent me to AV Forums in the first place to look at how it was uh, was, was treating the stuff and whether we could do forward support and uh, another sort of then fairly novel concepts. Uh, and I never left. Um, and then I've had a stint since then at Yamaha. I've moved back uh, to AP, ironically, to do some custom install work uh, with a company called Opus. And then since 2008, I have been uh, essentially writing for various parts of the UK press. And whilst I still do that, I have now uh, taken up a stint with you guys on AV Forums as, as, as you say, an audio reviewer. Um, it's a slightly sort of different concept to the screen reviews where there's a, a huge amount of objective data that can be taken about each video video item and, and you can very clearly see what it is and isn't doing. It's a far more subjective process. So you are, of course, free to violently disagree with me and my findings if you choose. Um, and I suppose the big point at the moment is it's fairly early days for the process. As you say, we've done some group tests for headphones, for iPod docking stations. I'm surrounded by uh, a pretty much complete Sonos system at the moment, which will be going up uh, on, the, on, the, on the review pages uh, before the end of the month. Um, really, uh, what would be best is, is if uh, listeners can start to feedback what they would like us to, to, to crack on with reviewing, um, because at the moment, it's sort of Phil and I sitting back and thinking, well, what do we reckon? Will this work? We'll see how it goes. Please feel free to actually suggest items. Within reason, I can review pretty much anything within the four walls of this building, provided it's not unbelievably enormous. So, yeah, if, you, if you're interested in something, for goodness, let us know, and we'll, we'll see if we can get it in and, and, and get something sorted. Of course, the, the AV world is moving, Ed. Um, one of the reasons why we've asked you to, to join us on, on AV forums is the fact that, you know, you look at the headphone market, we discussed it earlier on at IFA, um, you're talking about a market that's now worth about £5 billion a year, um, all kicked off. Uh, with these portable audio devices that, that have become so popular over the last five to seven years. Um, on top of that, we now have solutions in the home, like, say, the Sonos system. Uh, it's actually one of the most searched items on the forums. Um, so, obviously, a lot of interest out there for multi-room audio um, and streaming and so on. So, 
th- there are lots of areas there to look at, um, and certainly from a AV point of view, uh, lots of cross convergence there with products as well into the traditional home cinema or hi-fi world as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, as I say, this Sonos system is is going to be particularly interesting because they, they've sent both, they're very much their standalone uh, Play 3 and Play 5 modules and then uh, items that are more more closely designed to sort of interact with, with existing, existing systems. Um, at the moment, obviously, a financial situation for, for, the, for the country still ain't great. So obviously on the forums and in the wider wider country there's a lot of people holding on to equipment for for longer um and one of the things that we can sort of try and do is 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 guide people towards equipment that can bolt on to their existing systems to give them added features uh, added performance or, or so on and so forth so uh, as I say sonos and some of the streaming items are are classic examples for this headphones are classic examples uh, obviously then feeds back into items like uh, digital to analog converters headphone amplifiers or, or indeed more more feedback on the portable devices themselves so really give us the steer and um, I will get on the phone and, and, and get it all in for review so just let us know basically okay well to wrap up Ed why don't you tell us uh, what we have coming obviously there's a Sonos system anything else this month Yes, sat at my feet at the moment is uh, Onkyo's CRN55, which um, is one of those devices that looks very simple but isn't. Uh, It looks like a conventional microsystem. In reality, it does an unbelievably large variety of items. It is one of the cleverest devices I've had in the house for many a time, and that includes me. Um, And then uh, I've also uh, requested a pair of headphones which are endorsed by Ferrari. So uh, that's going to be an interesting one to see where we go as well. Um, I haven't yet seen those, so uh, we'll see see where that leads. Uh, All that will be up before the end of the month. And as I say, hopefully by that stage you can start to steer uh, Phil and I on what you might like to see next. And we'll we'll get that in and get that tested. So if you've got uh, any suggestions then uh, leave them under this podcast in the podcast forum. Uh, Just leave us a post on anything that we've discussed this evening, your points of view, how you think 4K may be the next big thing or not. Uh, Is is 8K a pipe dream in sci-fi? Everything that we've discussed tonight, anything you want to raise, then add them into the podcast forum. And that's about all we've got time for this evening. Don't forget, we do publish a podcast every week of the month. Uh, on the 7th of every month is the Movies Podcast. The 14th of every month is the Games Podcast. 21st of the month, a Home Cinema Podcast. And coming back this month, after a short hiatus, is the Podcast Extra, which will be on the 28th of the month. Uh, also, don't forget the Picture Perfect campaign. That's avforums.com forward slash pictureperfect for the forum. And it's my pictureperfect.com tv for the step one two and three and an introduction to picture perfect and what it's all about improving your tv also don't forget we're on facebook uh, so come and join us on facebook uh, facebook.com forward slash av forums uh, click the like button and uh, you can comment on all the news and reviews that get posted there and also don't forget we're also on twitter so the main av forums account is at AV Forums, or you can follow me at Phil Hinton, you can follow Steve Withers at Stephen Withers with a PH, uh, Mark Hodgkinson 3, is that right Mark? I think so. <laughs> uh, and Ed, are you on Twitter? 
I am. I, I, I might be persuaded to start doing again. If you are desperate to see my incredibly random witterings, you can find me at Leonard underscore hatred, because when I put my Twitter in, I wasn't actually thinking about the commercial viability or indeed anyone ever <laughs> trying to find me. With, with hindsight, I could possibly change that to something easier to follow. <laughs> well, I've got to say, it's an interesting name, that's for sure. Uh, so, well, let it do to annoy you so much, Ed. <laughs> Aunt, you, you don't uh, don't remember the uh, classic BBC comedy uh, "Look Around You," that spoof science thing, which featured uh, Mark Heap as Mr. Leonard Hatred, who'd invented uh, spray-on silence. Which I thought, <laughs> a, he had a fantastic name, and b, I thought that was curiously ironic in light of what I did. That's gone completely over my head. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but thanks again, guys, for your time this evening. So thanks, Ed, Steve, and Mark. Cheers, Not cool. at all. Cheers, and this is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening. We'll be back again next month with the Home Cinema Podcast. Until then, take care, and uh, we'll see you on the forum. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.